0: Hey, and thanks for listening in to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond, Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by uh,
1: Brian McLaren. Hello. Hey, great to be with you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Brian is an author, speaker, activist, and public theologian, a former college English teacher and pastor. He's passionate uh, about a new kind of Christianity, something that's just generous and working with people of all faiths for the common good. Uh, He has a lot more about his bio that he told me not to read, and it's good for (laughs) me because I would struggle with it. Uh, I I did want to ask this, Brian, reading your bio, should I call you Dr. McLaren?
1: Yeah, just call me Brian. That's good.
0: (laughs) Uh, More serious question. This is a test of faith, Brian. Oxford comma or no Oxford comma?
1: Oxford comma all the way (laughs) with
0: me. All right, you're in. You're in. (laughs) My mom taught English for... English grammar for many years. So I have a strange affinity for the English grammar.
1: Well, it's, it's, this is a bit of trivia, but I also was an English teacher for many years. I taught college English and one of my English teacher gigs, I actually did technical writing training for professionals. And that's where I became a big fan of the Oxford comma, because I saw legal documents Mm. where having it or not having it made a big difference in meaning
0: yeah yeah that's fun uh talk about talk about your kind of your your journey of faith uh how you came to christianity how that's developed over the years
1: so i was brought up in a committed christian family my parents were uh, were really wonderful examples of uh, christian faith um and uh but and i was brought up in a very conservative uh strand of uh, the evangelical uh, community. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my background. I I knew from a young age that I wasn't going to fit too well in that particular uh, stream of Christian faith because I was very interested in science and, and it was kind of an anti-science wing of the faith. And yeah. I was interested in issues of social justice and that was not uh interest uh, of interest to my faith community so yeah. i've been on a kind of spiritual pilgrimage uh, uh ever since
0: awesome uh talk about uh, a spiritual practice that's been meaningful to you or you'd recommend others
1: you know uh the first real the first two real spiritual practices i was interest, introduced to one was bible reading mm-hmm. and um and from the time in my late teens i was introduced to ways of reading through the Bible in a year. And I don't know if I ever made it in a year, but just the the reading large passages of the Bible um, and trying to get a sense of what a whole book was about. My goodness, that was a useful practice for me. And then I was introduced to journaling um, when I was a Mm, freshman in college. And that became a super important practice for me through the years. When I became a professional writer, mm-hmm. I, I found that journaling became less uh, meaningful as a practice just because sure. I was writing so much. But yeah. my goodness, those two practices gave me a kind of foundation that have served me well through my life.
0: Yeah, it reminds me. I used to blog a lot until I started having to preach every week, and then I s- suddenly ran out of things to
1: say <laughs> Yeah, Real quick. It, it's, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, And that's, that's why I think we need uh, a kind of uh, repertoire of spiritual practices that, that, that do their work with us for a while, and then mm-hmm. maybe we're ready for something else.
0: What is something, if you don't mind sharing, what's something you've moved on from then?
1: Well, um, you, you mean moved on from or moved on to? Well, you could answer either way. Okay, well, uh, you know, as I say, I'm I, I I have a box somewhere in my garage with uh, probably three feet worth of journals from all wow. the many many wow. years where where journaling was really important to me, and uh-huh. and I I haven't kept a journal like that you know consistently in probably at least ten years, so I moved mm-hmm. on from that, mm-hmm. but the the there are still many times where I'll be going through something and that's a practice I go back to. So it's it's not something you lose, it's something mm-hmm. that you keep with you. Um, probably a, a practice that I've come to in recent years is uh, you might call it mindful walking, but mm, sure. Uh, but walking in a way of both sort of orienting myself to the outdoors and if I walk in the daytime to the weather of the day and if I walk at night to just my place in the cosmos under the stars and uh in a, in a sense having a kind of prayerful meditative walking has been a meaningful thing to me especially in the last several years
0: yeah now this is an audio podcast so our, our listeners can't see what I'm seeing but I'm noticing a few different mu- uh, musical instruments behind you how is your i know that's part of your background too how how has music been a part of your spiritual journey
1: well you know i i started playing guitar when i was a teenager and was a singer songwriter um, as a young uh, guy when i still had hair and (laughs) uh and i did a couple albums back in those days and um but i still write music i uh you know just this week i had my guitar out and i was working on a new song so songwriting has been one of the ways that i kind of encode lessons that I'm learning or try to put you know when I was a preacher as you know as a preacher you produce a pretty high uh, volume of words yeah. Um, yeah and a thing a great thing about songwriting uh, is that it requires you to use very very few words to try to convey more hmm. meaning interesting well
0: let's talk about uh, your book which I'm excited to uh, Talk about, and I really enjoyed getting a chance to read. So, when is that coming out? Uh, the title is Faith After Doubt.
1: Faith, Faith After Doubt comes out January 5th, 2021.
0: So, probably as our listeners are l- reading this, this will be available in stores ready for purchase uh, at your favorite bookseller, or whatever, right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Talk about the why of the book, if you can. Sure. Well, as I said, I grew up in a a form of Christian faith that I knew wasn't going to work for me. I couldn't be honest. If I were honest, uh, people would be upset. And Mm -hmm. so I felt I I have to leave. Fortunately, I found uh, uh, other communities, sometimes it was just an individual or a couple of people, but who created space for me to hold my questions and hold my doubts, to not have to cover them up or hide them or soft pedal them. So I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. And then I became a pastor. And as a pastor, we tried in our congregation to make space for people to be honest about where they were with their questions. And frankly, um, as a pastor, I continued to have questions. And so uh, the experience of hearing people's doubts and questions and having my own has made this kind of a theme, really, of my whole spiritual life.
0: Yeah, I really I really liked how you talked about faith uh faith crisis, like a crisis of faith as an identity crisis. Yes. Um it it brought to mind something that I've noticed as a pastor, my my dad's a pastor and I see this in other pastors. How I think you wrote about this how we or maybe I'm reading it from somewhere else, I don't know. I think you wrote about though how we kind of attach our our identity as what we do to kind of who we are. And when, when the faith goes away, it's hard to know what to do with ourselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think the way I said it in the book is I remember saying, if I lose my faith, who am I? Um, yeah. And so so questions of faith become deeply connected with identity, and identity is deeply connected with belonging. Even though mm. I think of myself as an individual, part of the way I know myself is by the communities that know me and that I consider myself part of. And because a lot of our communities kick us out, if we dare to disagree or to doubt some of their beliefs, it, it means that that doubt isn't just a personal question. It's also a social question and that social question turns it back into a question of identity and belonging. You can't get much deeper in a human being. Than to challenge, uh, you know, challenge our sense of who we are, where we belong, where we fit in, where we're accepted. So that's why, you know, especially for people who take their faith seriously, dealing with doubts is not just a minor issue. It's it's yeah. fundamental to who we are.
0: Brian, something I meant to, I was going to ask you, and I forgot to write it on our questions, uh, but. And maybe I'm jumping ahead, putting the cart for the horse though, but something that I've really struggled with is I, as I reflect on my own kind of spiritual journey, leaving fundamentalism, yeah, is when I think about the the real identity crisis and all that I struggle with, like, I almost think like, it sounds horrible to say, but I'd rather just leave someone, encourage someone not to begin the process of doubting. Like what, <laughs> how do you feel about that?
1: Well, what's the old saying? Ignorance is bliss. Yeah, um, but, right. But ignorance is a very dangerous kind of bliss. <laughs> it is. And, and so, but I think I understand what you're saying. Uh, I, I remember uh, uh, someone contacted me recently, not recently, probably six or eight years ago. And he said, I'm a youth pastor. Uh, he said, it's a. it was a Monday afternoon when he sent me this email. He says, I, mm-hmm. I came to, to church this morning. Um, there was a note. That my pastor wanted to see me. When I sat at his desk, he said, "Are you reading books by Brian McLaren?" Oh, and wow. uh, he said, "Yes." He said, "Do you agree with them?" He said, "Some of it." He said, "You need to find another job." And, and wow, he he said, "I don't know whether to say thank you or you know, or or to say you know, yeah. you've, ruined, you've ruined my life because you know it complicates your life when you yeah. ask questions." But here is the thing it complicates your life when you have questions and you have to pretend you don't. And, Whoa, yeah. and so life is hard. And uh, uh, I have I've a grandson, I taught him a little saying years ago. Uh, I said, life is tough, but you're tougher. <laughs> hmm. and, and I think th- there's great blessing and benefit that comes from dealing with the, the, the challenges of, of facing our doubts and our questions.
0: Now, you kind of talk about this, you, as I understand it, you call it the simplicity and complexity yes. uh, interchange, and I don't know if you've heard of this, uh, the Shirky Principle,
1: are you familiar with that concept, Clay Shirky, I think? I never heard of it until I saw it uh, in, in the note that you sent me. I, I, yeah, you just repeat it for me.
0: Yeah, so basically the gist is, interestingly enough, I, we had to read about this in seminary, but Uh, This guy Clay Shirky came up with the idea that institutions basically preserve the problem to which they're the solution to. And reading about your thing about complexity and certainty, it really, or simplicity and complexity, it really brought to mind that point that. Yes. So many churches exist to kind of preserve the problem they're trying to solve. And I'm, I'm curious if that resonates with this book and your thinking.
1: So I've never heard that term before, but I, the way I talked about the same thing, uh, right. Lauren, Lauren, is a little less graciously. I talked about how I think religion is like a mafia or a protection <laughs> racket. And, you know, the yeah. mafia comes to town and they say, hey, a lot, of, a lot of businesses in this neighborhood have been getting burned down. Um, mm-hmm. if you will pay us a hundred dollars a week, we will protect you from being burned down. And of course the implication yeah. is if you don't pay us hundred dollars a week, we're going to burn down your building. So there's yeah. a fine line between protection and extortion sometimes. And I fear that what happens in religious settings is they say, if you aren't certain, you're going to mm-hmm. go to hell, you're going to burn forever in hell. And so you better come back every week so that we can convince you what you need to be certain of. And, and it's, yeah. uh. I, I, that doesn't really sound like good news to me. Um, but no. it, it, it's the operating principle other and other ways uh, I've heard it talked about is as a forgiveness racket, we'll make you feel guilty mm, and then we'll sell yeah. you some forgiveness. It's, it's yeah. an un- unhealthy dynamic, but I, I think there's sadly too much truth to it.
0: Yeah. For the forgiveness racket is what comes, comes to mind. It really resonates with me because I did think about, uh, just so much of the guilt that I, yeah I felt like was I'm sure so many people who were up in evangelical fundamentalist circles uh who are of my age or around my age and certainly you know our generations too your generations too can just resonate with that guilt,
1: yeah. Yeah. It, it, and, uh, you know, it, it sadly, it, it often hits right when people reach puberty, because, mm-hmm. you know, we, the fact is, we're sexual creatures, and then we're made to feel guilty for being sexual. So then yeah. somebody comes along, and they make sure you feel guilty. And then they tell you how you can be forgiven. And yeah. uh, it, and it, it, it creates a kind of vicious cycle, right? Because yeah because it leaves a, a kid who's 11 or 13 or 15 wishing they were eight years old again before all of these problems arose. Yeah. And that, that creates a kind of infantilizing, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, it makes us against growing up. And sadly, there yeah. are a lot of parents who they, they like the time when they could tell their children what to do and yeah. give orders. Well, part of reaching puberty is having a desire for your own future and more responsibility and more freedom and so again you feel guilty for wanting freedom yet wanting freedom is part of what maturity is all about so it those all of those negotiations get wrapped into guilt and shame and and religion has uh you know can can either help us grow through that or mm-hmm. it can complicate it for us
0: i mean that's a lot of what you talk about in the book is the this, is it the word you use? Stages of faith or stages yes, of life? I'm forgetting. That's
1: right, stages of faith, exactly.
0: Yeah, because yeah. it, it seems like so much of religion, or at least a subset of religion, Christian religion, is is meant to. I don't know. what Would you say f- keep you in? Those early stages one maybe two
1: yeah so the stages i talk about in the book are simplicity complexity perplexity and harmony and i think mm-hmm. a lot of churches you fit if you're in stage one as soon as yeah. you move into stage two you don't fit i think there are yeah. other churches where you can fit in stage two but as soon as you move to stage three you don't fit and yeah and And this, uh, I think, helps a lot of people understand their own kind of spiritual autobiography. They were made to think there's something wrong with you for growing up. Now, Mm -hmm. what I think we could all wish for, and this is what I I imagine people like you are trying to do in your context and that I tried to do in mine, is we wish that we could have faith communities that instead of trying to put a ceiling and not let us grow, actually Mm -hmm. were more like a launching pad and they were helping us grow. They were all for our growth.
0: Well, ah well, let's come back to that because I have a lot of questions I want to ask you <laughs> about how this relates to church. um, but before before we move on to that, I was really fascinated about you talked about in the book Theological certitude and the connection between th- theological certitude and moral failures. Yes, and it brought to mind i've in the last few years, I've really become a student of family systems theory, yes. Uh at Friedman. it really brought to mind their idea uh, of sabotage and and this is a course of self-sabotage but i never thought about how a pastor might be so anxious recognizing the incongruence between their what they're saying and what they're believing in private that they would sabotage themselves just to get out of the situation
1: yes i think this happens to pastors as i talk about in the book and I yeah. think it, it happens to Christians in general. We, we, mm-hmm. we start to feel we're projecting this front that I believe this, I agree mm-hmm. with this, I think this is okay, I think that's terrible. And the front that we're asked to project becomes more and more distant from the us that we hide. Yeah. And, and after a while, the, the, you know, the psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. We, mm-hmm. we start to feel this, this, this disconnect between what we're pretending to be and what we really are and and sometimes I think we it becomes a relief to sabotage ourselves, to, to get kicked out of a group like that, because we yeah. don't want to have to keep pretending.
0: Yeah, it makes me wonder, like, what do you say to someone who's been a pastor of a church or been at a church where their pastor has committed this kind of wrongdoing? Should we have a, a more of a measure of understanding grace i don't i don't know what uh, cuz it's so complicated around clergy ethics and wrongdoing
1: yeah it is so complicated and one of the big problems that pastors don't realize and that congregation members don't realize is that for people with a position of power and trust sex is always more than sex there's always a power. there's a power dimension and a trust dimension an institutional dimension that that we've got to learn to take seriously and that's the the first thing i'd say is that churches have to be and and pastors need to become more aware of the issues of of power but you know you mentioned edwin friedman and his incredible work on family systems theory and in family systems as you well know they talk about the identified patient yeah. It's where, yeah. It's where you have a whole family system that's kind of sick and then mm-hmm. one kid acts out. And yeah. so then everybody focuses on the bad kid and they never yep. pay attention to the bad system. And and this uh, I think is one of the larger issues at play in Catholicism and in Protestantism mm-hmm. where we have people acting out sexually, maybe we we need to take that seriously and we need to deal with the personal and the and the power dynamics of that but maybe we need to look at the whole system that yeah. creates this kind of acting out
0: i mean it's so much of what we're seeing with uh, in 2020 with the uh police injustice is that same system versus you know the bad apple and, and we could almost apply that same kind of principle that the, the the cop acting out is the identified patient but you know as so many of our uh, Black Lives Matter activists and um, speakers have been saying, like it's the whole system that's the problem.
1: Yes, and and this is where I think we are at a moment of a of a big shift in our culture, where we start to realize that it's not a matter of being an individual, blaming an individual, or blaming a system. That we yeah. we as individuals are part of social systems and. And we're part of communities Uh, to be a person is to be a person in relationship and to be a person in community and to be a person who belongs to groups. And and this is where the where our old ways of dealing with difference, both difference of opinion as in doubt, Mm -hmm. difference of behavior and so on. We, we just have to grow up about in, in this a, a whole lot to learn how individuals and communities are, are going to coexist. It involves changes in the expectations of individuals and changes in the system, uh, the, the group as a whole.
0: Well, uh, let me ask you another question. We're kind of getting off. I'm getting off, uh, off the tr- topic a little bit, but humor me, if you will. Sure. I think this is one of the challenges that I recognize, at least, between the kind of I would say a false dichotomy, at least between the personal sin and then the systemic sin. The caricature of liberals is we only care about systemic sin. There's no real focus on personal wrongdoing. And conversely, yeah. conservatives, we might say, only care about personal and ignore systemic sin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I Because I was brought up conservative, I was always told that that was the way liberals were. When I actually met liberals, <laughs> I found out that that wasn't, the, that it wasn't true but yeah. Um, but yeah we're going to have to we're going to have to take more seriously how connected we are this is one of our huge problems this could take us very far afield Lauren but you may have heard the term first axial age that sometime oh. uh, there's a group uh, Carl Jasper's was the main philosopher who talked about this but that there was a period of basically the first millennium BC mm-hmm. was this period when human beings become deeply self-conscious and start thinking about themselves and writing about themselves and talking about individuals and their relation to the cosmos and so on. And Mm -hmm. what that did is it unleashed this period of, that's gone on a couple thousand years where we've been obsessed with our individuality and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a little bit like a teenager coming of age and (laughs) all he thinks about is my rights and my freedom and so on. But then comes a point where you have to say, okay, we've spent 2,000 years thinking about our individuality. Now, how Mm -hmm. do we think about our connectivity? Not only our connectivity to other people, but also to the physical environment. One of the things that this pandemic is showing us is that we are deeply connected to each other. We share germs. We share water droplets. Um, Yeah, uh, And then we start to think, yeah, and we're also more connected to the environment than we thought about. And that's, of course, what the ecological crisis challenges us to, Mm -hmm. to think about. And coming back to the subject of doubt, this requires us, if we're going to be responsible people, to doubt the individualistic approaches we were given, whether it was uh, only to be concerned about where do I go after I die, that sort of individualistic life after death focus of a word salvation. Or maybe mm-hmm. then we go back and say, I, I'm starting to doubt that whole concept of salvation. Maybe salvation is not just about me as an individual, it's about a healing and liberation for everybody all connected. And that, that to me is part of what growth and faith is about, moving, not ignoring the individual dimension, but reconnecting the individual to the larger whole.
0: Yeah. Boy, folks, I want you to just to recognize what a great speaker and communicator is. Brian was able to like go off in the deep end and then bring it back to his book. (laughs) (laughs) So let me make my own attempt here, Brian, uh, to make a connection. You're speaking about community and connectiveness. And as I understood, a lot of the second half of your book talked about faith communities. And as a pastor, I couldn't help but think about your different stages, and how those different stages relate to church, um, and I, I work in the mainline context, mainline Protestant context, and I'm curious. Like when I think mainline Protestants, I think like stage three, yeah, uh, and I also think like how hard that is for churches. To gr- in my opinion, for churches to grow, for with a bunch of stage three people. What are your thoughts?
1: Yes. So this, uh, for folks who haven't read the book, this will make a whole lot more sense when you, you know, get yeah. into these four stages, and it's very, very simple to understand. But maybe tell me if this would make sense to you. Stage three, uh, perplexity, is the stage where we become skeptical, where we engage in critical thinking. Yes. And, yes. And and here's tell me if this would ring true in your experience, Lauren. I think a lot of stage 3 sem- a lot of mainline protestant seminarians yes are, go through stage 3 yep. but then when they come and get their first job a whole lot of the people in the pew want stage 1 and stage 2 answers they want yeah. simplicity they're even maybe open to complexity but they don't want to hear what you learned in seminary yeah and and i think the solution to this is going to happen much more naturally when we have more and more pastors who are in stage four, which I call harmony, mm, which has the yeah. ability to say, oh, if you're in stage one, I know what you need, but I don't wanna meet your ne- stage one needs in a way that box you in at stage two. I wanna mm-hmm. meet your stage one needs in a way that invites you into stage two and stage two that invites you into stage three. And and in a way, it, it's something we all know, we see it in the best teachers and in the best parents. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you can imagine a little child walking up to, uh, let's say a five-year-old kid walks up to his mother and says, where do babies come from? Yeah. <laughs> well, the, you know, there's certain amount of, of information that you can give to a five-year-old, but there's probably too much information you give to a right, five-year-old right. so that the wisdom comes and how do you tell a five-year-old what he or she needs to know? in a way that you never have to go back when that five-year-old is 10 or 12 or 14-years-old and say, I was lying to you back when you were five. Yeah.
0: Right?
1: And, and that, I think, is the, what stage four leadership does. It, it gives people the answers they're ready for in stage one that prepares them. It doesn't frustrate them for what they need later on. It prepares them.
0: Mm. Now, how does this relate to the term you use in the book of this, the four-stage community?
1: Yes. So what that would mean is that you'd have leaders who help people at each stage in a way that's appropriate to their stage and prepares Mm. them for the next stage as soon as they're ready. And that, that says, that tells them you have important work to do at this stage. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and when you've done that work, you'll be ready for the next stage. And then there'll be more work, uh, after that, this sense that, um, that, you're in a lifelong process of spiritual growth this isn't the mm-hmm. process of just learning the right answer now and then you know it forever and all you yeah. need to do for the rest of your life is fight with other people about whether they have the right answer no yeah you're in a lifelong process of growth
0: what would you say then uh obviously pastors we need to be continually growing and learning but what what would you say to a, to pastors church leaders is is the most important or is it an action? Is it a, you know, what would you say?
1: Well, the phrase that I seize upon in the, in the, uh, last part of the book, as you'll remember, is this phrase from Paul's epistle, epistle to the Galatians, where he makes this statement that I never paid attention to until, uh, you know, probably I was in my forties and it's this Mm -hmm. amazing statement. He says, neither this is going to sound super nerdy for some people but he says neither circumcision nor other uncircumcision means anything yeah the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love now that to me is a statement that is so radical if people mm-hmm. really grappled with what paul was saying there they would they would uh yeah it would blow their minds uh, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love not achieving the right list of correct beliefs and defending it to the death and insulting anybody who doesn't agree with it. No, faith faith is a a way of handling what we know and what we don't know. Um, It's it's an attitude of trust and openness. Um, Faith expressing itself in love. So what really matters? Love. Well, if that of course is what Jesus said too. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is love. Uh, John said, if you say that you love God and you hate your brother, you're totally mixed up. Yeah, uh, I'm, That's a rough paraphrase. But, <laughs> but, uh, but this emphasis on love, it seems to me, is what we actually have in the Bible. The Bible mm-hmm. gives us law at the beginning, rules. Then yeah. it gives us wisdom. That's what we have in Proverbs, for example, mm-hmm. um, that, that says, listen, just having the rules isn't enough. You need wisdom. And then it even goes beyond wisdom to say we need to care about love. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, that, and if that became the framework so that every pastor said, my job isn't just teaching people rules, it's teaching people rules so they can be loving. And I mm-hmm. want to teach wisdom, wisdom so we can be loving. That's when I think life gets interesting and, and good yeah. and rich.
0: Awesome. Well, I want to ask you just, we're in this time of COVID. We're in, what, early December. Uh, it's been such a time of disruption for so many millions of people, and certainly the church has experienced that just in incredible ways. Yes. And in this time of disruption, uh, many people are talking about the changes that will come as a result of this disruption. What do you see as um, affecting churches? Like, do you, do you sense like this, that there'll just be this, this push to go back to what was, or there'll be real openness to change? What are your thoughts on, on how COVID will change church as we know it?
1: Yeah. So I think we're seeing such a diversity in responses to COVID in the church that tells us yeah. a lot about the church. We see mm-hmm. a certain group of people who are in denial. They say it doesn't exist. Yeah. um, And, and they have, all, they be, fall prey to all kinds of Absolutely wacky conspiracy theories. Yeah, to to deny um, that uh, already over two hundred fifty thousand, and now people are saying by next spring it could we could be at five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand. Yeah, and, I was and, reading and, that and, this morning. And so we have a group of people who just live in denial. Their yeah. faith is their way of living in denial. I hate to say mm. it, but it's true. Then we have another group of people who are who are responding to COVID by saying. But in a surprising way, saying we can be flexible, we can learn how to do church online, we can learn yeah. how to, and amazing flexibility. Now, some of them, as soon as the pandemic is over, <laughs> will say, yeah. "Let's get back to normal," and they will have forgotten this short-term experience of flexibility. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, I think there are other people who this is this is shaking them up. I just had coffee, a socially distanced coffee with a priest uh, today. Uh, Episcopal priest, and she was saying to me that she sees this is changing things for good. Even Mm. after COVID is over, we're learning things about what it means to be church and do church that will be different going forward. To me, that's our great opportunity. If we can say COVID is our opportunity not to go back to the old normal, but to create a new normal. Uh, yeah. and that is, I think that's the attitude that it, it, I, I want to encourage everywhere I possibly can.
0: Well, let me, let me spring this on you too. Then I asked this to my leadership team last night, what's something you miss most about being in gathered community with other believers? Like to me, it's like, I miss singing with other people.
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. That is something. You know, um, one of my favorite moments in a gathered church service is watching people, uh, in in the church I'm a member of now, people go forward to receive communion, Mm -hmm. um, and, but watching people receive communion together is to me a very powerful message. The fact that it's something we do with our bodies and the fact that in a way we all are admitting that we're fed at the same table, Hmm. uh, that's, that's something I really miss.
0: Yeah, that's that's what a great analogy and image too of where things, some things just don't translate
1: online. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm all for having uh, Eucharist online too. Yes, Uh, but um, uh, uh, sadly, some denominations won't allow uh, folks to do that. But yeah, but the embodiedness of eating, you know, there there is something Mm -hmm. about that. and in the sense that the Eucharist to me is a mystery, um, mm. it's not just a symbol of one thing. It's a mystery yeah. that opens us up to very deep realities, and and that sense of involving our bodies together in a in a mystery, it, it, there is something very precious about that. That I look forward to when we are able to be back in person and singing as well. You're right.
0: Yeah, it's in that what what makes like a an image so profound is that it's its deep ability for just continued meaning to be mine from it i was thinking about the i don't know if you saw There was an ad that came out for hopefully i'm saying his name right the reverend warnock from yes, georgia
1: yes. he's a good friend of mine
0: oh, okay well walking his dog and yes folks yes. on twitter were loving all the subliminal images and i was thinking about like how what a great kind of piece of art or image just lends itself just to continued meaning making and probably even beyond what even the original artist had intended. Uh, but that's just what great art does.
1: It's true. And it's a great way to think about a ritual. Uh, a, yeah. Ritual is yeah. a kind of performance art that we engage in together, evoking yeah. meaning. And just like right. art has mm-hmm. bottomless levels of meaning, I think uh, I think that's what, in the best sense, our, our most meaningful rituals have too. Yeah.
0: Well, I feel like I could keep uh, throwing you questions all day, but I see my daughter here needing it help. So let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. Is the church really dying, or is it dying to change? How can the church recapture what it was in the first century, a distinctive confessional community willing to stand against the status quo, to speak up against the empire, and to stand for the gospel? How can it do this in a 21st century context? This year, the Festival of Homiletics invites you into a conversation around how the promise of the gospel might shape hope and ministry for the future of the church. What is the role of preaching and forming the church of the future? Be inspired by God's word proclaimed by some of the nation's finest ministers and teachers. Experience the fellowship of hundreds of preachers. Learn and worship in an atmosphere that is dynamic, friendly, nurturing, and prophetic. Come renew, refresh, and recharge your spirit. Join the Festival of Homiletics this spring for the 29th Annual Preaching Conference. It will be broadcast virtually the week of May 17th to the 21st, 2021, and is free to all who register. Enjoy over 30 sessions from some of the best practitioners in the business Michael Curry, Kate Baller, Diana Butler Bass, Otis Moss II, Brian McLaren, Marilyn Robinson, Adam Russell Taylor, and so many more. Register for free today at festivalofhomiletics.com. All right, we're back with Brian McLaren, and Brian, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to, but if you're Pope for a day, anything you want to do, what does that day look like, that kind of thing?
1: If I'm Pope for a day, I would send out a message to the world. First of all, I'm a huge fan of the Pope and he has sent out some amazing messages. Laudato Si, I think is one of the most important messages. And then Fratelli Tutti, this idea that we're all siblings. Oh my goodness, great things. But Mm -hmm. if I were Pope, I would say, as of today, I not only allow people to experiment, I'm calling on people to experiment with in every dimension of Christian life, uh, Mm -hmm. to experiment with liturgy, to experiment with times of gathering we need to experiment we need to be flexible all with the goal of helping people learn to love god neighbor self and the earth i love
0: that i think your colleague uh, diana butler bass put that out on twitter something like that i don't know if you saw her tweet about a suggestion she made to some episcopal group about needing a spiritual like venture fund
1: venture capital passers. fund yes yeah. yes yes yeah, I I mean we need that kind of spirit, and of course COVID in a sense has has given yeah. us the, the opportunity.
0: Necessity is a mother of invention, right?
1: That's right. What
0: is a who who would be a theologian or historical cr- Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life?
1: Oh, uh, these days it would be Howard Thurman. I think Howard okay. Thurman is probably our greatest Christian leader, one of our greatest Christian leaders of the 20th century. And sadly, relatively few white people even know about him. But he was uh, the black uh, theologian who inspired Dr. King in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It's said that uh, Dr. King carried around uh, one of Howard Thurman's books, Jesus and the disinherited. Mm -hmm. And I just think he's a deeply important and inspiring person and a beautiful writer of prose as well.
0: Yeah. What do you think history will remember from our current time and place?
1: I think they'll, they'll be shocked that people could be as stupid as we've been in recent (laughs) years.
0: Uh, hard to argue with you there. Uh, something more positive. What do you hope for the future of Christianity?
1: I hope, I dare to, well, first of all, I expect that the worst features of Christianity will get worse. The worst Mm. expressions of Christianity will become worse. But I hope that that gives courage for people to explore the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field. In other words, to rediscover Jesus and Jesus' radical, powerful, liberating message of love.
0: I love that. I love your usage of that
1: parable there well it's i think it's it's always true that our greatest treasures we very quickly forget they're buried in the field (laughs) Mm. they're in our backyard the whole time and yeah we forgot about them
0: well this is uh i really appreciated our conversation i appreciate your time where can folks find out more about you and your book
1: my website is brian and they'll find about my book and uh, all the other resources that I have available there, net, and then links to Twitter and Facebook if and Instagram if people are interested in that sort of thing.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks again, and may God's peace be with you.
1: You too, Lauren. Keep up the great work. I'm so glad you're helping people think about the future of, uh, of Christianity.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people.
1: Thanks, and go in peace.